0: Thank you. DARKENED TOWN Chapter 1 The story you are about to listen to happened in the spring of 2019. There is nothing more discouraging than living in a place without hope. Dark towns are all over the world. They exist in America too, of course. Sometimes we, like any other naive person, believe that the power of corruption and the influence of the bad guys is something that only happens in third world countries. Shelburne, Vermont was once a peaceful place until Jeff Garrett came to establish his home there. Jeff was a 35 year old guy who loved working out, driving fast cars, and came with an entourage including cooks, a house cleaning crew gardeners and several young lady friends to keep him company. He bought a mansion in the east part of town. He quickly implemented a heliport and expanded the garage to cover his fleet of 25 fancy vehicles. Naturally, everyone in town was impressed with Jeff. He introduced himself to the local Citizens Bank's manager, owner and operator Mr. Wallace, since Jeff wanted to open an account. Mr. Wallace quickly invited him to join the country club. In less than a week, Jeff was the most popular guy in town. Everyone in town wanted to become friends with Jeff, and he knew how to make a good impression. He threw his first party, inviting key players of town. In a matter of a month, he was the Mr. Garrett. It took him just a few more weeks to gain the friendship of the chief of the police department, the mayor of the city, and the head of the courthouse. It was like the perfect chess game where all of his pieces were exactly where he wanted. No one needed to ask him about his occupation as his business card stated it very clearly. President and CEO of Garrett Gas and Oil Investments, Incorporated, with headquarters being located in Park Avenue, New York City, NY. Soon, all the people of Shelburne accepted the eccentricities of Jeff, because he would always send an I'm sorry for the inconvenience card, signed personally by him, and always with a large sum of cash. Nobody refused to forgive Mr. Garrett. Nobody. Slowly, the town started to change. After the small incidents of Jeff's vehicles interrupting the peaceful town, many other drivers followed the example. Police officers were always hanging out at Jeff's mansion. The rumors of everyone using drugs there began to spread like wildfire among the people. One day, someone said that Jeff became the owner of the local radio station and the local newspaper. Often, pictures of Mayor Montgomery and Jeff were published to inform the population about the great new project that Mr. Garrett did to help the citizens of Shelburne. People began to hear about gambling secret houses operating in the night. More bars were open, and suddenly there were a stampede of party girls that didn't work, but every night they were seen in bars, restaurants, and of course, having fun at parties. Young boys even wanted to be like Mr. Garrett. His clothing style, his hairstyle, he was the icon to admire. Many of these young guys were instantaneously taken in as Jeff's friends. The city's change was accelerated at that point. Traffic laws were broken constantly, liquor stores were having a great sales season which led to the city having more accidents. The amount of cases coming to the courthouse for all kinds of violations increased by 500%. All staff working for Judge Branselduff worked more than ever. A new weekly staff meeting was created by Branseldorf exclusively for his senior staff. It was a long day on Fridays, starting with lunch, and frequently they all went together to Jeff's house at the end of their work meetings. Dorothy's dead. Chapter 2 The sound of the ambulances was so loud on Main Street, everyone went out to see what happened. They were terrified when they saw the body of Dorothy Matthews, the sweetest librarian. Apparently a drunkard killed her while she was hurrying to open the library that morning. He was driving a fast vehicle. The police showed up and then he was taken to jail. However, inexplicably, he was easily released after paying a $200 bail bond and the judge sentenced him to 10 hours of community work. The whole town was in shock. Dorothy's family received a visit from one of Jeff's employees. People said that he sent a lot of cash to help them with the funeral expenses, but the drunk driver was still continuously being seen driving fast and irresponsibly in town. Which made sense, as he was a close friend of Jeff's. The population began to worry after these events. The peaceful city that one day was known as the Jewel of Vermont, now it was transformed into a place where no one could live in peace. No one could drive safely. Most corners had strangers always smoking, using drugs and drinking alcohol. There was trash almost everywhere. More liquor stores were opened as well as dancing clubs and not the kinds where decent couples went to dance. The secret gambling houses became less and less secret. The town was infested with vagabonds and all kinds of depraved people. The people were seriously alarmed and felt defenseless. The feeling in the city was a sensation of sadness, obscurity, and fear. The kids stopped playing sports because they were afraid of having all these reprobated individuals hanging around them. Families stopped going to have fun in the parks of the city because of all the crime and wicked things happening in public. No one could ever say anything about it because the police would only come basically to protect the evildoers and simply suggest the public to go home. In essence, the population were on their knees, not knowing what to do. Jeff always showed up to give envelopes with cash to the people just to pacify them and tell them not to worry because he was there to help. Elderly, middle-aged and young adults were practically defeated. They remembered the good old days before Jeff came to town with his fancy lifestyle. Everybody knew that it was him and no one else, the one responsible for the decay of their hometown. Jesse Parker was a 23-year-old who came back after finishing college. He wanted to spend a few weeks with his parents before he moved to Minneapolis to assume his new job as an assistant to one of the most prestigious litigators there. Jesse was bright and fun. He was the kind of kid that people immediately loved. His parents were highly proud of him. He was raised in a conservative family. He did things by the book. He was a boy scout, great in sports, helpful in his church, but he was especially the kind of kid who always cared for the people in need. When Jesse returned to Shelburne, he couldn't believe it. The look of the town was disgusting. Trash in the streets and the horrible feeling of evil everywhere. His parents told him what happened during the last 14 months since Jeff came to town. Jesse immediately began to visit all the citizens to find out more about the situation. All of them confirmed the theory that Mr. Garrett's disastrous influence was the cause of this degeneration. Young adults started to spend time with Jesse because he began to talk about doing something to change this. They wanted it, too. Elderly and middle-aged people were afraid of trying anything because corruption covered Judge Bransel Dove, Mayor Oswald Montgomery, and Chief of Police Matt Foster, the most influential people in town. Everyone else just followed their lead for fear of losing their jobs or businesses or they were frightened by Jeff's mercenaries. Jesse decided to create a base group to consider their options. People began to talk about these reunions, and eventually Jeff found out about it. Jeff made sure Jesse's parents received a message that came attached to a rock sent through their kitchen window. The note said, Jesse needs to continue his journey to Minneapolis ASAP. Jesse's parents feared for their boy's life. They spoke with him, even though they already knew what the answer would be. Jesse said, I already spoke with my future employer about the current situation here. He will wait for me until all of this is cleared up. Jesse's parents decided to support their son. They always told him to fight for the truth and for what is right. Jesse's first move was to request a re-investigation of Dorothy Matthews' death. Judge Branstoldove granted it and the game began. Chief of police Matt Foster initiated the investigation as it was guessed by everyone the investigation did not bring any new information other than Miss Dorothy crossed the street without paying any attention in an intersection that clearly had a green light for the driver who had impeccable driving references. The investigation also indicated that they found several bottles of sleeping pills in Miss Dorothy's coat and purse, which she was taking without the knowledge, neither consent, of her doctor. A note was also found on her computer at work indicating that Miss Dorothy was considering ending her life because she was highly depressed. Case close. Jesse lost, and the morale of the people went down, and now more people were afraid of Jeff's reactions. Trapped. Chapter 3. Jeff invited all the corrupted officials that he had on his payroll to discuss business with him. The meeting was full of alcohol and drugs. Party girls were all over the property, dancing in rhythm with music, being openly inviting. Jeff was now showing himself to be the true, immoral man he had always been. The gang was not hiding anything, but rather leaving themselves wide open. Jeff told everyone, This week we had the largest shipment of drugs from Asia coming into the U.S. safely. Each one of you will get $50,000 tonight as a bonus! The crowd went crazy and the music got louder. Hell became real in that mansion. What Jeff and collaborators didn't know was that Jesse, along with his close friends Phil and Tommy, were secretly filming videos, taking pictures, and recording audio of what was happening there that night. They hid very well while they sneaked onto the property, but, as clever as they were, they were not invisible to Jeff's security cameras. Suddenly, an alarm stopped the party and guards began the search for them. Jeff went on a drug-induced rampage, but he was used to being high on drugs, so he regained control of himself and gave the order to his gangsters. I want them alive! Jesse, Phil, and Tommy began running, looking for ways to get off the property as soon as possible, trying to find their vehicle. The high-tech security camera system started to follow their track. Pit bulldogs were released and the mercenaries began to shoot into the air to scare the fugitives. As they were escaping, Jesse yelled to Phil and Tommy. Guys, we have to split, otherwise they'll catch us all. Remember, no matter what, the one who can escape knows what to do with the evidence. Run and escape as fast as you can. Everyone could hear the dogs barking and shots being fired from a semi-automatic. There was a lot of commotion in the mansion. The high-rank officials were leaving the property in their own vehicles. Everyone went crazy, followed by Mayor Montgomery. However, the chief of police, Matt Foster, stayed. There was a voice coming through the intercom on the property. Mr. Garrett, we caught the first one! Jeff asked, how many are there? Matt Foster said, three in total. Jeff yelled at him, I want all of them, Foster, alive, alive! Foster replied, yes, sir, we will do. Jeff's property was located near the mountains of Shelburne. The mansion was in the middle of a huge forest. The whole property was over 50 square acres. Using the dogs, flashlights, and the camera security system, a crew of 40 armed mercenaries continued looking for the other two guys, but they couldn't find them. After two hours of searching, Foster said to Jeff, the other two are gone. Jeff was livid, In his anger, he started breaking all kinds of objects in the house and yelled obscene phrases. Screaming like a maniac, Jeff decided to go where Foster had tied up the one guy who was caught. Jeff yelled to Foster, I want you to find out who he is and who the other two guys are and do it now! Foster was very familiar with different techniques to make people talk in situations like this and began the interrogation. Tommy had duct tape on his eyes and mouth. His captors had already beaten him up enough to break some ribs, bust his jaw, and break his right leg in several areas. Tommy was bleeding, could barely breathe, and couldn't move. Foster removed the duct tape from Tommy's mouth. Foster asked Tommy, What is your name, boy? Tommy did the same thing he had done for the last hour. He refused to speak. Not one word. Foster grabbed an ice pick and stabbed Tommy in the head. Tommy yelled loudly. He felt like he was about to die. The hit was strong enough to make him bleed profusely, but not too hard to knock him unconscious. Foster said, Okay, boy, you will talk. So, one more time, what is your name? Tommy kept silent, gasping uncontrollably. Suddenly, they heard the sound of a phone vibrating in someone's pocket. It was Tommy's phone, receiving a text message. Are you alright? The text came from Jesse. Jeff said, Give me that phone. He read the text and told Foster, Make sure he stays alive at least for another hour. Then Jeff texted back, Your friend got into a lot of trouble thanks to you. You better come back here with your other friend and bring the equipment with you. We know that you were recording. You've got 30 minutes or your friend is going to die. Jesse and Phil were able to escape, but they were hidden in the mountains, waiting to hear from Tommy. Jesse showed the text from Tommy's phone to Phil. Jesse became desperate and grabbed his head while sinking to the ground. Phil said, Jesse, we all knew the kind of trouble we would be in if we were caught. Tommy knows that, and remember that we agreed to do this no matter what the consequences were. You even said yourself before we split, remember? Jesse, with tears in his eyes, said, I know that, Phil, but I feel responsible for Tommy. You know what can happen to him if we don't surrender, Phil said. No, man, we can't do that to Tommy. We promised to each other that no matter what, the one who survived would fight for our community, for our town, for our families. Jesse came to his knees and sobbed, saying, Oh God, oh God, please help us. Phil was also overwhelmed and threw an arm around Jesse. Both were terrified at what might happen to Tommy. Jesse's phone alerted them, another text message. You only have 25 minutes. Jesse said to Phil, listen, I have an idea. What if I tell Jeff to meet us at some exchange point? Phil said, That is not going to work because Jeff is just going to kill us all then. Jesse said, Not necessarily, maybe we can negotiate with him. I am not sure about that, Jesse. Jesse said, I have to at least try. Phil just nodded, tears coming down his face. Jesse sighed and said, Okay, here it goes. Tommy's phone vibrated in Foster's hands. Foster said, Mr. Garrett, he's calling you. Jeff took the call and said, You are down to 20 minutes until he dies. Jesse said, I want to hear Tommy's voice to confirm that he is still alive. Jeff put the phone on speakerphone and passed the phone to Foster, who brought it near Tommy. Jesse said, Tommy, are you there? Tommy, panting, replied with a weak voice, yes. Jesse said, Tommy, listen, don't worry about anything. You're going to be fine. We'll give him whatever he wants. Everything is going to be all right. Tommy yelled, no, don't do it. No, Jesse, you can't do that because it was my choice to do this. I'll give my life to protect my family, Jesse said. No, Tommy, listen, we made a mistake, we can correct this, we will find a way to get you out alive. Tommy yelled again, saying, No, I can't do this anymore, my family, your family, all the families in our town need us. This is what I signed up for, even if it costs me my life. Jeff took the phone and said, Okay, enough, you heard him. So, in this moment, you are witnesses of his decision. Jeff turned and nodded to Foster. Foster grabbed a gun and shot Tommy. Jesse and Phil heard the shot over the phone. Both couldn't believe what just happened. Jeff once again spoke and said, All right, listen up, you two idiots. I am sending now my people to your homes. They will bring me your families. Now, do you believe that I will kill whoever is necessary until you bring me what I want? Now you only have 15 minutes. Click. Hobbs. Chapter 4. After Jeff hung up the phone, Jesse looked into Phil's eyes and said, Now I know for certain that this is what we need to do for our families. Tommy gave his life for this cause. We can't fail him, not now. It's time to take our town back. Phil replied, what do we do now? Jesse said, we follow the plan. It's time we fight back. They looked at their watches and started the timer for 15 minutes. They plugged the cameras and the audio recording devices to the laptop and connected to the internet. Immediately, Jesse started to upload all the images, videos, and audio recordings onto the FBI's public server. Simultaneously, he was uploading portions of everything to the big TV news stations in the country indicating the exact location of where they were. At the same time, Phil was making phone calls to the FBI and to the same TV news stations to report what was happening. Jesse and Phil looked at their watch. The timer indicated there was 10 minutes and 25 seconds left. Both put all the equipment in their backpacks and began to run towards Jeff's mansion. The timer was then on 0 minutes and 50 seconds when they were near 200 yards from the main entrance. Jesse sent this text, we are here at the main gate, open it. It was then they heard the sound of cars on the road behind them. There were two SUVs which quickly passed them. In the first SUV, there was Jesse's parents. In the second SUV, there was Phil's mother, brother, and little sister. Timer was on zero minutes and five seconds when Jesse and Phil stepped onto the property. Jeff and Foster were standing arrogantly on the steps of the main entrance to the mansion. The mercenaries brought all the innocent out of the vehicles and aligned them in front of Jeff. Foster told them to get on their knees. All of them had their eyes covered. Jesse's parents and Phil's mother, brother, and little sister were frightened, not knowing that the mercenaries were pointing their AK-47 at them, ready to shoot. Jeff shouted, Bring me the equipment! Jesse and Phil walked towards him and put their backpacks near Foster. Then Jeff said, You fools! You idiots! You really thought that you could beat me? I have all the power needed to do whatever I want! I beat you today, and I always will. All the guns, politicians, cops, judges, and even the news stations are part of our kingdom. Don't you know evil reigns? You idiots and naive people who believe in fairy tales. The weak die and the strong survive. You are no exception. Then Jesse replied, You're wrong! You are the weak one, and you've already lost! Jeff laughed out loud, and with him, Foster, and each one of the mercenaries laughed, one by one, hard and loud, mocking Jesse and Phil. Jeff retorted, Even when you are just a few seconds from your death, you still believe in fairy tales? What a waste of life! What a fool you are! Jesse said, Mr. Garrett, can I ask you a final question? Jeff laughed and mockingly replied, Sure, what do you want to know?" Jesse said, I want to ask you if you are able to tell us here today openly that you are a drug dealer, a murderer, and an instigator of corruption here in Shelburne and in many other cities. Jeff laughed out loud, so loud that the sound of his laughter was echoing in the outside walls of his mansion, as well as in the hundreds of trees in the forest. Then, Jeff proudly yelled, Yes, I'm able to do that. So what, you little puds? Are you going to arrest me? Everyone there was laughing out loud. Suddenly, everyone heard the sound of helicopters and sirens coming from dozens of FBI vehicles led by Agent Mark Rhodes, head of the DEA. In his hands was the order to arrest Jeff. Agent Rhodes walked up to Jeff and placed him in handcuffs and said, Jeff Garrett, you are under arrest for the crimes of drug trafficking, murdering, and corruption of government officials under the Hobbs Act. And with you, each one of those who work for you, including Judge Branseldorf, Mayor Oswald Montgomery, and Chief of Police Matt Foster, the FBI agents brought all the criminals down. Jesse and Phil ran to release their family members and together witnessed the fall of a cruel man who once thought that he was unbeatable. Jesse later decided to run for office. Afterwards, he became a congressman and a decent lawmaker writing a law to protect the victims of murders committed by corrupt officials and lawbreakers. The name of the law was the Tommy Law. Shelburne was safe again, and the justice had won. Thank you for listening to my story. I am Gian. I would like to invite you to go to my website, mygiancarlo.com, or you can go to the Facebook page, Gian.com, audiobooks also you can check our YouTube channel Gian Audiobooks thank you